Hello, I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners, Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate our economy, enhance our institutions, and make better policy choices. Recovery won't be the work of a single order of government or of any single industry. Recovery will take the efforts of a host of actors in politics, business, and public and private affairs. Today, we're drilling into the question of the multiple layers of government and what that means for crisis management, especially in uncertain economic and fiscal contexts. Our focus will be on subnational governments in the United States who have been receiving increasing attention for their responses to COVID-19. How have states grappled with crisis management and response? What lies ahead as they focus on recovery in uncertain economic and fiscal contexts? How can relationships, be they political or bureaucratic, between states and the federal or central government be characterized? Our guests today are experts in state affairs and are here to help us understand the politics of money and crisis management. Joining us today at the Recovery Project is Scott Pattison. Scott is an expert in state and fiscal affairs, and he's the former executive director of the U.S. National Governors Association and the former executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers. We're pleased that Scott's now also a senior fellow at IFSD. Dan White is the Director of Public Sector Research at Moody's Analytics. He has an in-depth knowledge of state, fiscal, and economic affairs. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Scott, I'd like to get started with you on a, a bit of a bigger picture question here. We've seen, as of late, premiers, governors taking on challenges right at the front lines. We're talking about everything from acquiring personal protective equipment to managing healthcare systems to thinking about school closures and business closures and, you know, even reopening some parts of economies in different state governments. How do you manage as a state during a period of crisis? Can you walk us through what that looks like? Thanks again, Helena, for being on. I think it's terrific that you all are thinking about the recovery because that's obviously very critical right now as you know, is right in the middle of the crisis. And so I think this really demonstrates to people of Canada, of the United States, how critically important subnational governments are. What's interesting about this crisis is everyone is dealing with this. Usually what happens is a state governor or mayor of locality is dealing with a crisis that's very regional or just in that particular state or city, such as a hurricane coming through, or tornadoes. The good part about that is that every state and local government, having dealt with that type of crisis, has a strategic plan in place on how to deal with the issues that they're facing. What is unfortunate right now is this is such a significant crisis that state and local governments are really in the eye of the hurricane, so to speak. It is very difficult for them to begin the preparation for recovery. And also what I think is extremely important for states and local governments fiscally going forward is to really prepare for what should be expected volatility in revenue and potentially even a roller coaster 
for some states and localities in terms of their revenue. So they're going to have to pivot fairly soon from dealing with a crisis and that crisis mode to dealing with the recovery. I want to pick up on that concept of volatility that you're raising, Scott, because I think it's an important one. This idea that absolutely we're in the eye of the storm right now, we're in the thick of the crisis and everyone's in emergency response mode. But especially when we think about the economic and the fiscal realities, that uncertainty or that vulnerability may be ongoing. And Dan, I'd like you to jump in on this next question here. When we think about the 50 states, you have an incredible diversity economically, demographically across your states. You have some that are so large that they rival, you know, the GDPs of countries. We don't have that same diversity here in Canada. We have 10 provinces. Sure, economically um, and, and industrially, they all look different. Demographically, they may differ, but you are, you know, working with borderline laboratory of, you know, different perspectives and, and certainly of different circumstances. Can you help us understand what those economic realities are for states right now and how states might start thinking about uh, managing or grappling with that economic and fiscal uncertainty looking ahead? Sure, I'd be happy to. And one of the things I should say before I start is I work for Moody's Analytics, which is an entirely separate company from Moody's Investor Service, which is the ratings agency. So please don't let anything I say be misconstrued as having any bearing on past, current, or future ratings actions. One of the things that we are seeing is a tremendous amount of volatility across the country. And as Scott mentioned, the level of severity of the the current downturn is like nothing that we have seen before in previous recessions. And so the impact of what's going to happen to each state individually is going to be very different. One of the things that we have done to try and wrap our arms around the magnitude of the losses across states is we do a stress testing exercise. We've done that annually for several years now. And what we have really learned as a part of that exercise is that even though the average state usually needs between you know, 10 and 15% put away in a kind of a savings account rainy day fund, the distribution around that average state is so incredibly diverse in the United States. It's really incredible owing not only to the geographic and the industrial diversity across all the states, but also the policy differences across states. The tax codes across all 50 states are incredibly diverse, and that can inject additional volatility into the business cycle when we look at them. So, for example, the most volatility that we expect to see as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic crisis is in the energy states. And that's something that we've seen before. So Alaska, for example, they could lose up to 80% of their tax revenue in one year as a result of the decline in oil prices. Whereas, you know, my state, my home commonwealth of Pennsylvania here, will probably see somewhere in the 8 to 10% decline in terms of revenue. And that's because Alaska relies, you know, more than three quarters of their revenue comes from oil and gas severance taxes. We're here in, in Pennsylvania, we have a much more stable tax structure where we rely a lot on very flat personal income taxes and sales taxes that see a lot less volatility over the course of the business cycle. And the result of that is that we have the privilege in Pennsylvania of budgeting differently than folks in Alaska do. So if you look at states like Alaska, like Texas, like North Dakota, states that really rely on energy, they've seen this movie before, they know how it ends, and they know that they're going to see a tremendous amount of volatility, which is why they have massive rainy day reserve funds built up for just this type of occasion. And they'll be relatively okay when we come out of this because they've got that money to kind of fill those budget holes. The folks who are really going to be hurting over the next year or two are the folks in states that don't normally see that much volatility 
but that are seeing tremendous declines, not just because of their tax codes and the economic consequences of COVID, but some of the direct consequences of COVID. So some of the states uh, in our most recent stress tests found that New York, New Jersey, Connecticut states that really are at the epicenter of some of these outbreaks are seeing tremendous economic stress, and they're not used to seeing that level of stress, so they don't have that money put away uh, in the same degree that you would expect to see a a more energy state like uh, North Dakota or Texas. The other thing, and this is probably the encouraging thing that's come out of the stress tests and, and some of the analysis we've done most recently, is that in the past 10 years, since the Great Recession, states have become so much better prepared for a downturn, having learned the lessons from the Great Recession, So states like California, for example, who see tremendous amounts of volatility uh, during recessions because they have very progressive personal income taxes, they have a very large economy, that introduces tremendous volatility into the tax code. They really had to make some just extraordinarily large fiscal cuts and tax increases as a result of the last recession. They've been putting money away in rainy day reserve funds every year for the past 10 years, and they're in a much better position to the point now where Given some of the scenarios we're looking at, they may only have to cut their budgets you know, by 5 or 6% as a result of the economic fallout from COVID-19. So there's been a tremendous amount of lessons that have been learned across all 50 states. But as you mentioned, every state is unique. Every state is facing their own specific challenges and preparing for those challenges in a different way. That to me is absolutely fascinating, just that you can generate that much internal comparison when you think about tools and capacity for revenue generation. And I find your framing helpful, right? That you're talking about two big clusters and and we're talking about aggregate groups here, that there are states who are accustomed to managing volatility and they have plans, they have tools in place, like you mentioned, rainy day funds, say in the case of Alaska. But then there are others that have been really hit hard by this crisis and who aren't accustomed to that same uh, built-in volatility planning, whether it's on their revenue tracks or in other forms of, of budgetary planning. And Scott, I'd like you to pick up on this because I think this is an interesting connection with the political side of things, right? When we think about the Canadian example, we definitely are seeing provinces who are experiencing volatility in different ways. One of our premiers, for instance, Premier Ball of Newfoundland, actually wrote an open letter to the prime minister saying it is bad economically, it is only going to get worse, and we need help. Scott, can you tell us what some of those tools might be for recovery and how governors uh, might be recalibrating their plans and how they build that rather into their you know, political futures and into their political considerations. It is very diverse. And of course, as you've observed the political system in the United States in the last few years, there's quite a bit of diversity and certainly incredible ideological disagreements on how to approach the finances of a particular state. So it depends very, very much on the leadership of the state, which parties run the state. Is it run by just all Republicans? Is it run by all Democrats? Or is there a split government? That being said, I think that states are really going to have some difficulties because the federal government's been very helpful with these stimulus. But I think going forward, because of the huge federal deficits that this has added to, I think politically, it's going to be harder and harder for the federal governments to be extremely generous to states. I think what's going to happen is states are going to have to really think about using tools like strategic planning, the use of analyzing data and performance. They're going to have to think about restructuring, reform, 
things that have been talked about and seem kind of mundane, but I think these tools are going to be extremely critical because without consistent analyzing and forecasting as to where a state's finances are going, both short-term and long-term, and then adjusting to that fiscal situation, I think things are going to be very difficult because as Dan talked about, there's volatility, there should be expected continued volatility in some states, and they really have to be planning for and be ready for that. From a political perspective, there's disagreement on the best way for the federal government over time to be helpful to the states. I, for one, think that states benefit most from providing funds through healthcare, primarily Medicaid, to the states. The money is fungible, and since they really have to spend money on healthcare, most of it is in the required part of spending in terms of under our Medicaid program for low-income individuals and providing them health care. And so it's very important, I think, that the federal government provide money through that system, partly because, in effect, what's happening is the money's being provided to the states that most need it at the time. But there will be a lot of political disagreement as to whether block grants to states are better or whether funds should be provided from the federal government to states under the health care and Medicaid system. So Scott, there are a couple of things that I think we need to pick up on there. You know, the idea that states are going to have to depend on data. You, you mentioned performance, right? Questions of strategy and certainly value for money. These are things that we often hear about in the ether, right? And say perhaps more stable times, but that might not have the same political pull or political attention to actually get them to work. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, states are going to have to reckon a bit and start to manage internally to help mitigate the effects of this crisis, both from fiscal and economic perspectives. And Dan, what I'm wondering from you is if you can help us draw the link here with investments that work, what are some of the tools, what are some of the things that states can try to do to help reignite their economies? You know, infrastructure is the one that often comes to mind here. We start by filling potholes and then hopefully, as Scott's saying, we use data and we try to build out longer term strategic plans that drive those returns. Can you tell us a little bit about what the data is telling you about the nature of investments that work and maybe those that should be avoided? It's an important conversation to have, as Scott mentioned, because in a recession, everybody's a loser. In a recovery, there can be winners and losers, and there will be winners and losers. And we find that the folks who come out of the recession or go into the recession best prepared will come out of the recession in a better position to compete against those states around them. So as you mentioned, we have a very diverse set of 50 states here, and they're all competing with one another. And they're doing everything they can to make sure that they have the best workforce, that they have the best infrastructure, that they have the best incentives to attract businesses to come to their states. And the folks who are prepared are the ones who are able to put in some of those policy decisions. So they're able to continue to invest in their workforce, for example. They're not you know, slashing education spending. They're able to continue to invest in their infrastructure in a way that is strategic and in a way that really speaks to the future economic landscape. They're not just hopefully filling potholes and putting money in the ground for money's sake. Those states who are in a position to do that are going to be the ones who really outcompete and win the recovery. Those states who are not in that position are going to be making quite different choices, but they're going to be faced with choices about both of these things that we have to do, cutting spending or raising revenues, 
both of those things are going to have a negative impact on the economy. Which one is less impactful? Which one is less negative? Is it better to forego that uh, infrastructure project that we have been looking at? Or is it better to furlough workers for this amount of time? Is it better to cut back on this program? What we have found in general is that there's really two stages, right? So the first stage is to get through the immediate shock with as little economic damage as you can possibly do. And then the second piece goes to what Scott was mentioning about those longer term investments. So what infrastructure projects are going to be most useful for us? What we're finding is that a lot of states who can invest in, again, that future economic landscape, whether it be broadband access or some more kind of out of the box type infrastructure projects, are really setting themselves up well to compete following COVID. Because the one thing that is clear is that even though there is this initial shock that we've never seen before, the impacts of COVID are not going to go away overnight. As soon as you know we can all go back to work in our offices, that doesn't necessarily mean that all this is over. And so there are going to be fundamental changes about the way the business is done. And so the states who can get out in front of that and really do their best to gear up their investment to best facilitate that change in business going forward, they're going to be the folks who are best positioned to win the recovery. Can you give us examples of states that you think have been good at this in the past or states that you think are currently well positioned? to get out ahead and to make those leaps and to drive those changes? Most of those states who are in a really good position for this are states who really did learn their lesson from their last recession. And they've done a very good job of not just putting money away into a rainy day fund or preparing for the next recession, but really making a plan about, you know, what are the contingencies for when we do go through that next economic downturn? The state of Utah is a fantastic example. So not only have they put money away, they have made very clear contingency plans for if you know revenues go down by X percent, then we do Y. If they go down by Z percent, then we do A. They have made that policymaking process much simpler. And as a result, they've been able to really be strategic about their investments. They've really increased the quality of their workforce. They've really increased the connectivity within the state so that they're able to compete better with some of the larger population centers. It's one of the reasons why you know, Goldman Sachs, I think, actually employs more people in Utah now than they do in New York City. There are a bunch of companies who are coming to states like Utah who are better prepared for what's been going on. They feel a lot more comfortable in that economic environment than they do in some of the more volatile environments that they've been operating in in the past. Well, there are definitely some very compelling examples. And for me, it certainly draws on some of the differences with Canada um, in that we have certain practices like, say, equalization payments that are actually hard-coded in the Constitution. And while there are federal, provincial negotiations and arrangements, there are floors oftentimes, right? You know, Scott, you were, you were mentioning uh, Medicaid previously. Well, the Canada Health Act, you know, has certain standards that provinces, no matter how they decide to implement, have to make sure that they uphold or maintain. And so, Scott, I want to talk a little bit now about to what extent U.S. states can count on their federal government for assistance. And I'm also thinking that in the context of you know, the upcoming election in November, how that might change or how that might influence the nature of those relationships. Because, you know, again, in Canada, there are limits in some ways to how much a federal government can change in a fairly short period of time. What I would expect is certainly underlying the passage of these huge stimulus bills in the United States is the fact that it is an election year. I'm not saying that the Congress and administration wouldn't have acted fairly strongly if it wasn't an election year, but the election year has allowed them 
to worry less about certain politically salient issues such as deficit and debt that comes up in other years. So I would say that it's one of these situations that as Dan talked about the volatility fiscally and economically for states, you're going to see a lot of political volatility in the U.S. continue. So as a result, I think you're going to see states differ in how they respond and recover from the economic impacts and fiscal impacts of the COVID, the virus. And it's going to depend in many cases, partly on the politics. You're seeing it play out right now with some states like Georgia wanting to open up the economic activity very quickly versus a Michigan, which has closed just about anything, including garden centers. So to me, what you're going to see is politics certainly have an impact over time. And the election year, what I would predict, will prevent much of a discussion about the fiscal concerns at the federal level, such as the finances and debt of the federal government. I think you're going to see that change over the next few years, and that will become an issue again, as it is not at the moment. But I also think what will be very, very interesting is to see the extent to which the Congress and the administration are going to be helpful to states, both fiscally and otherwise. And you're already seeing kind of a give and take back and forth. The Democrats tend to want to provide more direct assistance to states, whether it's through Medicaid or otherwise. There's less of an interest on the Republican side to do so. So the politics and how that plays out and what the election results are, are really going to have an impact on how much the federal government will be helpful to the states and what kind of actions, for example, if the Republicans do well, if they provide certain investments to states, I think it will be more limited and it will be more such as block grants. Whereas I think if the Democrats do well in the election, you'll see them more interested in providing funds for social programs and other things that they would be interested in making sure are funded. So certainly interesting political times ahead, to say the least, perhaps two different approaches, right? So either way, money will flow, but the quantum and the impact of those resources will differ. And certainly the strings attached, if we can call them those, will change too, depending on who wins the November election. As we're looking ahead here, Dan, you keep mentioning the Great Recession and, you know, previous economic crises and the lessons learned from states. Can you frame out for us sort of the top three lessons you think subnational governments should be keeping in mind as they look ahead to recovery, especially given the lessons learned from challenges past? The three biggest lessons to learn are, you know, number one is that preparation is everything. Having that money in a rainy day fund for example, is still the most effective way to ensure that you don't have to make incredibly large fiscal changes as a result of a recession, because those fiscal changes can have major economic consequences that can really hurt you in terms of the recovery. One of the reasons that the Great Recession was followed by the not-so-great recovery here in the U.S. is that most states and local governments were not prepared for any downturn, let alone one the magnitude of the Great Recession, and, and that caused them to make some relatively hasty fiscal changes, which obviously hurt the economy. The second thing is that preparation alone in terms of rainy day funds is not enough. There has to be a plan. Those reserves should be very purposeful. A great example 
comes out of uh, Texas from the last recession. Texas, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're an energy state. They've seen this movie before. They know how it ends. They have very large reserves in Texas. But in the 2008 recession, it wasn't very clearly articulated necessarily what those reserves were for. And so they spent so much time arguing about whether or not it was raining hard enough for the rainy day fund that by the time they actually implemented anything, they might as well not have used any reserves in the first place. And so having a clear plan about, you know, this is what we do when this happens can really make life a lot easier on policymakers because the last thing you want to be doing at the depths of a crisis is really kind of having some of those fundamental and at times political arguments about what should be happening in terms of emergency response. The third piece of that is kind of what we've been talking about with Scott is making sure that states in particular are thinking strategically about what those potential fiscal changes are. Because anytime we go through a recession or a downturn like this, there's going to be spending that's cut. There's going to be potentially revenue that's raised. And thinking about those in a strategic long-term way, as opposed to a near-term political type of debate, which I know can be very difficult for uh, folks in state capitals to do sometimes, that can make all the difference in terms of winning or losing the recovery that comes after that subsequent recession. So three definitely helpful tips there that are all definitely connected and certainly come from the balance of the conversation, right? The idea of an absolutely necessary rainy day fund, but purposeful plans for uses of those reserves and the importance of longer term strategic thinking on changes and how states will have to grapple with changes. I'll ask you both, you know, one last final question about the fiscal futures of states over the next year. And Scott, if I could invite you to talk about it from very much a public finance lens, right, where we see that tension between difficult or uncertain economic circumstances and how you allocate money, how you get value for that money, and certainly how you uh, translate uh, some of those decisions for voters, for citizens, and what that might look like. And then, Dan, I'll ask you to comment on perhaps the economic realities of what we're looking like and how that'll shape state's capacity, state's latitude into the year ahead? I realize that the public financial management staff at state and local government levels are obviously in crisis mode, and they're extremely busy, and their time, among other things, is very limited. That being said, I think from a public finance perspective, I really agree with Dan's lessons. They're absolutely critical that they have to be prepared for the coming volatility. I think one of the things that state local government has to try to avoid, it's so easy to just do across the board cuts. It's easier politically, and frankly, it's easier to administer. This time is different. It is so important to try to look at data, develop contingencies, do planning, think strategically. They're gonna have such up and downs in revenue and we're going to see it through the economic activity going up and down, partly in response to what the virus is doing and how people are affected. But it's absolutely so important to take some time to step back and prepare for the volatility going forward over the next year and beyond and have those contingencies in place so that, for example, if you have a bump in revenue in August, you don't put all kinds of things in place as if that will continue. You're ready for a decline in September. You might have to deal with how you deal with the state workforce, hiring freezes. You may have to furlough in some cases. There'll be some painful choices, 
but strategically planning rather than just doing across the board budget cuts and targeting cuts and targeting investment is going to be really important, I think, to make sure that you're focused on the mission of the agencies and you're focused on what is best at that time for your state locality and the people who reside there. That's so important, right? That idea of being able to focus on performance budgeting, and it becomes certainly even more difficult in the time of a crisis. But taking that crisis and doing as much as you can to plan and certainly to leverage the information that you have and to actually make decisions that lead to a desired outcome or to a desired result becomes even more important, as you note, when there is so much uncertainty all around you. Um, Dan, if you were to close off and tell us about what we might expect in terms of that uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of it, I think is the easiest uh, thing to say. There is tremendous uncertainty, not only because of the emergency kind of near-term measures. And so there's a lot of crisis kind of thinking going around about potential contingencies because the virus is really what's driving the train here. As much as we hate to admit it as economists, this is the epidemiologist telling us what's going to happen less than the economist telling us what's going to happen. And so the length of time that it takes for some of these business closures and travel restrictions uh, to be in place uh, creates tremendous uncertainty. And from an economic perspective, we couldn't have anything worse than the level of uncertainty that we're seeing because we don't quite know, especially small business owners, don't quite know what to do in terms of planning. And when the private sector doesn't know what to do in terms of planning, then the government sector really has difficulty trying to wrap their brains around what they should be doing from a budgeting standpoint. The bigger issue with uncertainty actually extends, as Scott was mentioning, beyond you know, the next six months beyond the 2020 election, because what thing that this has done in the United States, it's basically thrown the playbook out the window for the 2020 election and what comes after the 2020 election from a fiscal policy standpoint. There's a lot of things that both parties, I think, we're looking to do after the 2020 election that they're just not going to be able to afford to do anymore. And for better or for worse, what maybe this has done is it's put some of our longer term issues into the forefront the Medicare and Social Security trustees report came out the other day. And within the context of COVID-19, those kind of long-term issues take on a much greater level of urgency because of the financial declines that have come out of this at a state level. That means pension funds, that means retiree health care. Some of the things that policymakers maybe thought they had a few decades to work on may be a much more urgent call than they had previously thought. And so thinking about that, those long-term issues, those long-term problems that are preventing states from making more concrete plans about the future and those strategic investments that Scott was talking about, that's going to be a lot of what the discussion looks like for the next uh, three to five years, the subnational level in the United States. Well, Scott... Dan, thank you so very much for what was a a really interesting exchange. And I think what we can all take away is that clearly incredible uncertainty economically, but that subnationals are going to have a substantive role to play in managing what that uncertainty looks like on the ground. Some are going to bear the brunt if they're not prepared, um, and others may leverage it as an opportunity if they're able to act with agility and leverage, you know, the best information they can get to help and inform their decision-making. So again, thank you very much for joining us uh, here at The Recovery Project. And on behalf of IFSD and our partners, Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we wish you both very well in the weeks ahead, and we certainly look forward to hearing from you as the circumstances continue to evolve. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much. 